Many of us remember exactly where we were and what we were doing at times of great national crisis. Ask anyone what they were doing when the attack on the Twin Towers occurred, and they not only remember, but have a unique story to tell. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and this week, as part of ReachMD's special report commemorating 9-11, we are talking to Dr. Katrina Furlick, the first woman admitted to the Neurosurgery Residency Program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and the author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. In her book, Dr. Katrina Furlick tells the story of her life on the inside of the world of neurosurgery. During her recent interview, we asked her for her snapshot of where she was on the morning of 9-11. Welcome, Dr. Furlick. Thanks for having me. Dr. Furlick, as you write in your book, during the year of the World Trade Center attacks, you were chief resident in your seventh and final year of neurosurgery training. Give us a little background first about your life at the time. What were you doing as chief resident? Sure. Well, the chief resident year is the final year, and so I was in charge of the rest of the team and had to make sure that everyone was doing their job and where they were supposed to be at the right time and in the operating room. And I, at the time, was in the operating room uh, myself. So that was my role. I was learning the ropes in surgery in my final year and also in control of the other residents. So when you first learned that a plane hit the Twin Towers, you were in the operating room? Exactly. I was in the operating room and I was with an attending who just happened to be from the Middle East, which was interesting because he had an interesting perspective on that. But I was helping to remove a brain tumor from a man's head, and we were opening the head at the time when the first plane hit, and we were linked to the outside world through one of our neurophysiology techs. There's a guy in the operating room who always monitors the, uh, the brain waves during the surgery, and he's the one that went out for a quick break and came back with the news. It must have been a strange situation. I can imagine the desire to learn more about what was happening out in the real world, but you needed to focus on the operation at hand. Sure, exactly. And obviously we were in control of what we were doing in the operating room, and so we do have you know, an ear open to what's going on in the rest of the room. And so you know, the OR door opened and the tech came in and announced what had happened, and you know, we kept working as we had been but obviously started to uh, speak amongst ourselves as to what this all meant. Now, obviously, just like most people in the world, we thought, wow, this is a freak accident. This is, this is tragic, and then just kept working. But meanwhile, uh, the tech was in touch and kept going out for more news as the, uh, the case went on. Tell us some more about what your thoughts were initially about what was happening. Well, my thought certainly was that it was all an accident. And even actually as the second plane hit, I thought, well, this is even a stranger and even more tragic accident. I was so naive in my thinking at that point. But my attending, who I was working with, we were both under the microscope, uh, the operating room microscope at the time the second one hit, and without stopping or averting his gaze, he said automatically, well, this is terrorism. I was shocked. And it was a strange feeling to be in the operating room focusing on something rather delicate and also getting the shocking news at the same time. It immediately made sense to you? I didn't think terrorism until he had mentioned it, and then uh, you know we were getting more news as, as time went on. I was at the University of Pittsburgh, and the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania wasn't all that far from Pittsburgh, and, and so when we had heard that another plane was missing and maybe near us, the entire hospital was on alert. Obviously, we weren't needed, but that was also uh, in our consciousness. So when you learned that the other plane was missing, you were thinking possibly it could be nearby? 
Right, exactly. That's at least the word we were hearing and uh, getting news fed into us in the operating room. Were you aware of a disaster plan at the time for situations like this, or was this just beyond the scope of imagination? Yeah, I, you know, nothing that we had been formally trained in. I think these days there is more formal training in terms of disaster planning in the hospitals, but nothing that I had personally ever heard of. It's just that we were kind of on alert for that morning, so that's what we were thinking about. And obviously my, my own personal thoughts were of family members, my husband was in Connecticut at the time, which is pretty much a suburb of, of New York City, and was doing business there, and I thought he could have been in New York, and my brother also lived in Brooklyn, so I was wondering at the time where they could have been, and I had to wait several hours until the end of the operation to find out they were both perfectly fine. Tell me more about this colleague, the foreign-born neurosurgeon who was working with you at the time. For some reason, he just knew right away, as soon as the uh, second plane hit, that he, he said immediately, this is terrorism. I think he, he just may have been more in his consciousness that that would have been a possibility. And in retrospect, it was obvious, but I, I was so naive that he was the first to bring it up. Yeah. Did you have an opportunity to work with the surgeon again? Oh, yes. Many, many times. Yeah, he's an excellent surgeon, and, and uh, we definitely reflected on that day together. Do you know of any healthcare professional who, because of their nationality, after that day experienced negative reactions or incidents caused by fear or stereotyping? Mm, luckily, no. I do have a close colleague now, a neurosurgeon who is originally from Pakistan and has a, a you know Pakistani name, and he is screened at the airports more frequently than most, but obviously he understands that. He doesn't take it personally. But other than those sorts of minor expected things, I, I can't think of any obvious other examples, luckily. Dr. Furlick, can you tell us what was the rest of your day like? It was crazy, just like it was everywhere else, but mainly it was an attempt not only just to get the job done, the daily things to do, but also just to gather more information. And so I remember as soon as I was out of the operating room from the craniotomy to the brain tumor removal, I got paged to the ICU. And so I, I ran over there just to see what was going on. And every single television in every patient's room was on. And uh, most of the patients in our neuro ICU are not conscious, but uh, all the residents and fellows and uh, nurses were simultaneously taking care of the patients and, and trying to keep an ear open to what was going on. So it was an eerie image to kind of walk down the hallway of the ICU and seeing all these images flashed on one TV screen after the other next to patients' beds. That was, that was memorable. And then I had to check on all the other residents and make sure that everyone else was doing their jobs, even though this news was coming in pretty rapidly. Describe how your neurosurgery team transformed the conference room. Sure. Well, it was an attempt just to gather as much information as possible, and so we have a big conference room where we have all of our, our morbidity mortality conferences where we show slides, and we have a large screen on the wall that has television connections. So we, we had CNN on, and everybody was filtering in and out of the room and answering pages as pages went off, and so we were obviously trying to do our jobs at the same time. We'd rush back to the room to check out the news. So it was quite a strange experience. You seem to describe this moment as a turning point where a loss of innocence was realized. Are you referring in the book to yourself or to the country as a whole? Well, definitely both. Definitely both. I, I think I realized my own naive nature at that point when terrorism was not on my mind, but was definitely on my attending's mind. And I just was a turning point for me and, and also for the country, obviously, and I think everyone. But I, I think of other times in my life when turning points has made me realize that, you know, I'm not so innocent or maybe a sibling of mine is not so innocent and, it, and it's a jarring event. You were working with a number of people who probably also had families, friends who might have been near the Twin Towers. Did you see their reactions? 
Yeah, that was pretty scary, too, because, you know, for the first few hours, everybody was in a mad rush to, to call everyone they knew, and people in the operating room obviously don't have that flexibility, and so there were people who were madly dashing to the phone as soon as they got to the recovery room to call relatives. Something I also wanted to mention is, if you're listening, you might be worried that, well, how can surgeons work and hear about all this going on at the same time? Isn't that a distraction? And certainly, it's unexpected news, and you, you process it mentally, but the surgery itself is often such a routine that you can actually listen to clips of, of what's going on in the outside world and not lose your concentration. So it's not an unsafe practice to you know, hear what's going on in the outside world during a surgery, but uh, it's obviously rare. We frequently don't have any connection to the outside world during those hours in the operating room. Right. Did you need to reassure this patient's family after everything went no, smoothly despite no. the distress? No. It wasn't, wasn't an issue, but certainly it was obviously strange for the patient to wake up after several hours and realize, uh, what had gone on during those several hours of anesthesia. In the aftermath of 9-11, how have things changed for you personally? Well, I ended up moving to the New York City area, just in Connecticut outside of New York, and so that was, you know, maybe closer to the whole event in the aftermath and made me really feel a, a strong kinship with New York City, and, I, and I really it's my favorite city in the world, and so, you know, that, that event really made me feel even closer to, to that city in a way. What about professionally? Have there been changes there? Professionally, I've actually seen some patients who had, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, people who worked in the area. So I frequently will get comments from patients that uh, they want antidepressants after that or, you know, other things of that nature. Um, but professionally, I, I haven't changed my career uh, because of it, but um, certainly I think about it often. I think it's a natural inclination for those in the medical field to, of course, want to help. And when something like this happens, that impulse is great. What have you seen in terms of yourself or your colleagues with regard to thinking about, you know, the possibility of some kind of disaster and, and being prepared as professionals? I mentioned before that hospitals now, since 9-11, are, are definitely more in tune with disaster preparedness and and you see conferences going on all the time about that, which previously I either didn't take note of or, or they weren't going on. So I think that's just more people's awareness. And my current partner that I work with in neurosurgery, he actually went down to the uh, the site, I think the day or two after 9-11, just to help out uh, in terms of people with spine injuries and uh, head injuries. So he had stories to tell of his personal experience. That was interesting. He actually felt the need to go there and help out. And what experiences did he share with you? Well, he was there pretty soon afterwards, and so he was just helping triage people with injuries and um, trying to figure out if any of the spine injuries were, were serious and helping put people on collars and, and make sure that they didn't uh, you know, move the neck if they potentially had an injury. So he was just helping helping triage and examine patients down there. How important was it for him to actually be there and use his skills to help out? Well, that was very important to him. I think in, you know, in a similar way, he has a real um, connection to New York City and, and really loves the city, so... That was just his personal desire, and I think he felt a, a compulsion to go down there and help, as, as did many other doctors. In your book, your book is really about your experience being a neurosurgery resident, and this is just one of the, the many you know complicated things that go on as you're struggling to become a professional in this area, and you know just fascinating how you have to juggle large and small all the time. Yeah, well, I tried to show that in the book. I tried to show some clinical stories but then weave in all the different angles that we have to think about from uh, the ethical to the anatomical to the, the social, and it's all mixed up together, and that's all part of the training. Some of it you just get on the fly, and other of it is, is more formally taught, but it's all equally important. 
Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Dr. Furlick. Well, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and this week, as part of ReachMD's special report commemorating 9-11, we were talking to Dr. Katrina Furlick, clinical assistant professor at Yale University and author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.